0: It all started peaceably enough back in 1940s Manhattan with aspiring writer Jack Finney. A few of his short stories had been published in the Saturday Evening Post, but Finney's real job was as a copywriter at a Madison Avenue advertising firm. By the early 1950s, however, he was convinced a better life lay elsewhere, and so he moved with his family to California. There, Finney graduated to novels, the first three of which were made into films. In total, he published ten novels, six of them making it to the screen. And, while this was not evident at the time, the decades since have shown that his most important and lasting work was a second novel, The Body Snatchers, published in 1955. So potent is it that it has been adapted to the screen no less than four times. It's my cousin. Wilma? What's the matter with her? She has a... Well, I guess you'd call it a delusion. You know her uncle, Uncle Ira? Sure. I'm his doctor. Well, Miles, she's got herself thinking he isn't her uncle. How do you mean? That they're not really related? No, she thinks he's an imposter or something, someone who only looks like Ira. Have you seen him? I just came from there. Well, is he Uncle Ira or isn't he Uncle Ira? Of course he is. I told Wilma that, but it was no use. Please, would you stop by and have a talk with her? Well, Sally says that I'm booked up for the afternoon, but. Why don't you ask her to come in and see me? I've tried. It tells of an alien life force taking control of the world by snatching humans when they are asleep and replacing them with near-identical pod people. More than familiar, Finney's plot was highly derivative of such works as Robert A. Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, John W. Campbell Jr.'s Who Goes There, and, of course, H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. In fact, so derivative was Finney's book, that contemporary critic Groff Conklin dismissed it saying, Too many sci-fi novels lack outstanding originality, but this one lacks it to an outstanding degree. Added to that familiarity, Finney's novel ends very conventionally, with the aliens leaving Earth because of mankind's strong resistance. Inexplicably, the story's banality attracted the attention of Walter Vanger a producer who had enjoyed great success working at Paramount Pictures and Columbia Studios in the 30s and 40s. By the 50s, Vanger had gone independent, and having acquired the film rights to Finney's novel, he approached Allied Artists, a small studio that had been known as Monogram. There, the staple diet had been B-movies, westerns, comedies, and action adventures. But by the mid-50s, Monogram had been refashioned, launching a series of still low-budget, but more ambitious pictures. Acquiring the Body Snatchers, Vanger hired in screenwriter Daniel Mannering, who, seven years before, had adapted his own novel, Build My Gallows High, and helped turn it into the classic noir picture out of the past. Together, Vanger and Mannering came up with a new ending that separated it from the books Finney's story so closely resembled. In all those stories, humanity survived, but Vanger and Mannering's idea was an apocalyptic one, where the aliens' conspiracy seeps beyond small town California and spreads out across America. Vanger hired director Don Siegel, with whom he had already made several features. And Siegel, always a pragmatic filmmaker, quickly wrapped the production in 23 days. But then some problems crept in. Firstly, it was decided the movie's title needed changing. It was too close for comfort to a 1945 adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's The Body Snatcher. So, alternate titles were suggested. Each one, paradoxically, more bland than the next. They came from another world, better off dead, sleep no more, and world in danger. Then, just as everyone settled on the suitably paranoid Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the picture previewed poorly, and allied artists, fearful that audiences would be alienated by the downbeat ending, decided reshoots were required. Initially, the film ran at a cracking 76 minutes, but with the framing device, Two minutes were added at both ends, so the story unfolded in flashback, an epilogue indicating that US authorities had been notified and America would soon be out of harm's way. Which is a pity because it undermines what is otherwise one of the best American films from the era. Well, what do you think, will psychiatry help? If all this is a nightmare, yes. Of course it's a nightmare. Plants from another world taking over human beings. Mad as a march hare. What have we here? Ran his truck through a red light. Greyhound bus smacked him broadside and tipped him over. Put him in the OR. Will you take over Benell for me, Doctor? Certainly. How badly is he hurt? Both legs, left arm broken all the bits. We had to dig him out from one of the most peculiar things I ever saw. What things? Well, I don't know what they are. I never saw them before. They look like uh, great big seed pods. Seed pods? Where was the truck coming from? Santa Mira. Curiously, it took a second adaptation, directed by Philip Kaufman in 1978, to reimpose the bleak ending. But by then, what initially passed as thrilling entertainment had, with the passing years, acquired considerable subtext. Finney had written his novel in the 1950s when Eisenhower's administration was not only engaged in a Cold War with the Soviet Union, but also struggling with the Red Menace at home. Was Finney's story a political allegory? If so, who were the pod people? Communists or conformists? By the time Philip Kaufman made his version in 1978, it seemed as if America had woken up. The Watergate investigation had forced President Nixon from office, so instead of political somnambulism, Kaufman went for social alienation. I've heard the same damn story this week from six patients. People are changing. They're becoming less human. It's happening all around us. That's not what we're talking about. This has nothing to do with the man that I live with. It has everything to do with it, don't you see? People are stepping in and out of relationships too fast because they don't want the responsibility. That's why marriages are going to hell. The whole family unit is shot to hell. David, you're not listening to what she's saying. Matthew, please stay out of this. You see, that's the point. I'm listening to you, but he doesn't think I am. Why? Because he doesn't expect me to bother enough or to care. He shifted the story's setting from small-town America to big-city California. San Francisco, to be exact, where 60s radicalism had mutated into the 70s me-generation, a time and place where, Kaufman believed, people had become incapable of connecting emotionally. In the era of New Age thinking, self-help books and group therapy, Kaufman's adaptation asked, Who are you really? And do I even know who I am? It may have lacked the political allegory of Siegel's picture, but by reverting to Vanger's dark ending, Kaufman more than made up for it with horror. There have been two further adaptations of Finney's book Body Snatchers from 1993, directed by Abel Ferrara, where the location shifts to an Alabama Army base. What makes Ferrara's adaptation work is again the story's potential for metaphor, with the military reducing its personnel to unthinking entities. Please come. It's too late to run, Malone. It's too late. They're taking the base! All we can do is wait until they come and the keys, Doctor. The keys. They'll follow you. They'll follow you. That's how they work. We gotta stand up and fight back now. Eight years ago, German director Olivier Hirschbiegel hot off downfall his internationally acclaimed depiction of Hitler's last days, embarked on what is, shall we say, a very unfortunate adaptation. Devoid of atmosphere and indeed terror, by which I mean strong emotion, this adaptation of The Body Snatchers may claim to be a sci-fi picture, may resemble a horror film, but so lacks personality, it is as if the film itself had been overtaken by pod people. My husband is not my husband. And what makes you say that? The way he acts. The way he looks at me. (laughs) He keeps bringing me things to drink. I don't want them, but he keeps bringing them. I yelled at him last night. He didn't yell back. I threw my glass at him, and he didn't do anything. I know you and your husband have a volatile relationship. I did, but not anymore. Yes, when he would get mad, I would be afraid of him. But at least when he kissed me, I knew he loved me. Now, when he kisses me. Watching any of the four adaptations, you can't help but wonder what a new version might bring. And that brings another question. What could the allegory be? How about the internet and avatars? The fear of identity theft might provide a key. Or what of political correctness, where language can no longer define the necessary definitions that differentiate you and me? Instead, it is neutralized so we don't speak, become passive, and everyone is the same. And what of religion? In this new version, the pod people would offer peace, but only to a chosen few. To religious conservatives, homosexuals, lesbians, bisexuals, and transgendered persons have been possessed, and their minds need readjusting. That would bring peace, but only to the religious right. So how about an invasion where the pod people do not promise peace? They wouldn't want you to be a passive creature, but rather an agent of terror. Your body would not be so much a pod as a walking bomb. Either way, I think it proves what critic Tracy Knight said about Finney's plot. It is a recharge test where the ambiguity is so fertile, viewers will see in it whatever they want to see. Or hear. After all, this is a podcast.